Hello again. I hope you've been enjoying our study through Joshua as much as I have. Uh, it's just a blessing to go back and read some of these wonderful Old Testament books uh, and see just the, the, the providence of the Lord, which will be a major theme for us this morning. But uh, if you've gotten to know me at all, you know that I am a lover of church history. And it has often been said that Eusebius is the father of church history or the first church historian. He wrote his book, Ecclesiastical or Church History, at the tail end of the third century, and he updated it over the next uh, couple decades into the early fourth century. And the work is made up of 10 books or something kind of like our chapters. And he opens up his his work by laying out his purposes. Here's what he's aiming to do. And some of those things is to trail kind of the, the, the leadership structure on down from the apostles. And other, others is to, to see the secular leaders as they, those uh, things happened. And obviously the persecution in the church. And he, he says that those who preached the word of God or proclaimed it by speech or pen. And then after he's laid out those kind of initial eight purpose statements, he talks about his, the different resources he's using, firsthand accounts and witnesses and books and and then he, he starts with this intro to his first book, as it were. And he says this incredible sentence. He says, I will begin with a concept too sublime and exalted for human grasp. The ordering of events by God and the divinity of Christ. Anyone intending to write the history of the church must start with Christ himself. So I begin this morning with this little quote from Eusebius because... As Eusebius says, all of history, all the events of history are ordered by God. And over and over again, as you read through his church history, you will see he continues to attribute outcomes of events to God's providence, that the Lord worked it out this way, that God is governing all of life. And that is the exact same theme we will see here in our passage today in Joshua chapter 8. So far in our study, we have seen how uh, Joshua has taken the torch, as it were, and he's led the Israelites and taken them into the promised land. And starting in chapter 5, there's a new kind of subsection within Joshua, and it's bracketed by these covenantal rites, as it were. So we saw at the beginning of chapter 5 how Joshua and the Israelites had crossed over the Jordan, and the first thing they do is they renew the rite of circumcision. It's this covenantal sign and seal that they renew. And they also celebrate the first Passover in the promised land. So this covenantal picture, they're in the promised land and they're renewing the covenant as it were. And five through eight form this kind of subsection, as I said, because we're going to see at the end of chapter eight that there's another covenant renewal that will take place. And we'll get to that in due time. But one of the reasons for this covenant renewal at the end of chapter eight certainly must be that the people already so soon have broken covenant with the Lord. And we saw this last week. Samuel did a wonderful job of taking us through chapter 7 and showing how an Israelite man, Achan, had taken what God had forbid, what God had put under the ban, it's often called. And so because of his sin, there was sin in the camp, and one man's sin caused the rest of the nation to suffer. And as they went in to go to war against Ai, some 36 men died for this man's sin. And so God reveals to them this sin, and the chapter ends with uh, Achan and his whole family uh, being judged, receiving actually the same judgment that all the enemies of the land of Canaan were. So it is a picture of God's judgment against sin, and Samuel did a wonderful job of unpacking God's holiness for us last week. And that chapter ended with this wonderful reminder, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. And so today, 
we have a renewed relationship, as it were, and a renewed act of obedience will play out in chapter 8. And so the main idea, I'll give it to you up front, for this chapter is according to the word of the Lord. As with Eusebius' history, this is the picture of God's perfect providence over the events of history. That all things will work out according to his word. And God's people do everything according to his word in this chapter. They are back to being an obedient people. So, we will see here in this chapter, under the three following headings, we'll break it down. First, we have the command in verses 1 through 9, the battle in 10 through 29, and then the renewal in 30 through 35. So with that, let's jump into the command, verses 1 through 9. Would you read these with me? And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to see, uh, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king, as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us just as before, so we will flee before them. Then you will rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire, and you shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush, and that lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. So, I know you've heard me say this before, but every book of the Bible is really about God and what God is doing. And Joshua is no different, particularly this chapter. It is God giving Ai into their hands. Now make no mistake, the people are obeying according to the word of the Lord, as we just read. And this chapter, though, is bracketed by this picture. Verse 1, God says, I have given it into your hand. It's God who's doing the giving. And verse 27, then we'll read again, according to the word of the Lord. He he told them this was going to happen. So this is a chapter about what God is doing through the obedience of his people. And that's really the summary of the whole book, is that God is fulfilling his promise of giving his land to his people through their obedient taking of the land. So with that, I just want to start with a little brief application aside, particularly because of the days we're living in and the tension and the uniqueness of the things that we're dealing with, is do we trust the Lord to fulfill his word? I know that these are trying days, and we can be easily tempted to begin to think things are falling apart in our society, and there can be arguments made that many things are. And I know many who are anxious and worrying about the different elements that are going on. Uh, what do we make of this command to wear masks? What do we make of the limitation on churches? Just, just yesterday, the Supreme Court let down a, an emergency verdict, five to four, that churches in Nevada were still going to be limited to gather, and yet casinos could operate. I mean, for those of us who love religious liberty, as we should, those are frustrating things. We could add many other similar questions. And I'm sure that there's some listening right now who would fall on one side of how to think through these issues, and and some would fall on the other side. Some are 
might be very opposed to wearing masks and to not gathering, and others might be for them or more comfortable with them. But friends, what we must agree on is this, is that God is faithful, and God is the one who is ultimately in control. Uh, Don't for a second think that the government somehow is the true sovereign, Oh, don't worry, don't you know, be deceived. Of course, they have abilities to, to command us and do things. But, but make no mistake, God is ultimately in control, as is most beautifully seen with the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, this despo, this pagan ruler. And God humbles him and made him like a beast. And when he finally came to, he says, when reason returned to him in Daniel 4, 34 and 35, even Nebuchadnezzar, this great ruler said, and I, at the end of days, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So what the Lord said to Joshua needs to be heard by us as well. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. We must not allow conspiracy theories or politically charged news to sway us to the point of worry and anxiety, friends. Our God is the true sovereign. What voices are you listening to? What voices are shaping you during this time? Are they making you anxious and worrying? See, for Christians, it's been well said that optimism is naive, but pessimism is atheistic. See, to be overly hopeful or overly despairing regarding the decisions of government or political policies or even religious freedom, as precious as we hold that freedom, is to waver in our trust of God. Some of the places in the world where there's been the most growth of Christianity are places with no religious freedom. So maybe to put it another way, is that of course we pray for religious freedom. Of course we seek to be good citizens and we seek to use our freedoms. But totalizing fear and anxiety has to stop. We do not despair because God is on the throne. And we as Christians need to be able to hold this tension that we long for our freedoms and we pray for them and we can even work for them in in civil ways. But we ultimately trust God and maybe God is doing something new. And maybe that makes us uncomfortable. But friends, God is on the throne. He is not thwarted by COVID or by masks or by anything else. So as we'll see in our next point, we are certainly called to obedience But we need to have these conversations amongst ourselves, particularly in social media realms, civilly and Christianly. You can disagree, you can have discussion, but let's do so as Christians. And please pray for the elders as we seek to navigate this and and we seek wisdom. How how do we best care for the church during these times? So we would covet your prayers. That's the first just little piece of application for us. But the next thing, just real quickly aside, you notice the difference here between Jericho and Ai. God had said, you're going to do the same thing to Jericho and the same thing to Ai and the same thing to his king as you did. But this time you get to keep the the booty. You get to keep the plunder. Which is to say, in one sense, looking back in hindsight, that Achan died for that, is that all sin is stupid. And I say this a little tongue in cheek, but not really. All sin is ridiculous. It is a stealing of things which don't belong to us, that belong to God. And yet God is going to bless his people with those things anyway. Uh, So just an incredible little aside when you think about that is that this time God gives. Why? Because all things are his. And the matter is, do we trust God with what is his? Or do we seek to take for us something that God has not yet allowed us to have? 
Well, verses three through nine now, Joshua is going to basically summarize the command. So one and two, he gets the command from the Lord. And three through nine, he gives the command to the people. And then as we'll see in our second point, it's the outworking of that command, the putting on the meat on the bones as it were. But there is a difficulty here. Because if you notice, verse 3, it says that all the fighting men arose to go to war. And then it says that Joshua sent 30,000 mighty men to go out for an ambush. And yet in verse 12, it says that there were 5,000 men that were sent out to go in ambush. So what are we to make of this? Well, there's three kind of major interpretations that you could take. First, it is claimed that there might be a scribal error. And so maybe there was a switching. And maybe it's supposed to be both of them are 30 or both of them are 5,000. That's one way that people have sought to deal with this. Another one is, is that the, all the fighting men maybe is actually just saying it's the 30,000 are all the fighting men that were taken up and 5,000 are the ambush. So 30,000 went up, 5,000 went in ambush. And the third way is at least one commentator has said that he thinks that there may have been two different ambush parties, one of 30,000 and one of 5,000. The problem is all of these are very difficult because none of them fit perfectly. And when you come to learn later that AI only had 12,000 people in the whole place. So 35,000 against 12 is a lot. Um, 30,000 and 5,000 in ambush against the whole rest of the army is even more. Uh, So it's a difficulty. Uh, What do we do with this? Well, I think this is a helpful way for us to think about what we mean when we say that God's word is inspired and inerrant. It's inspired and inerrant in the original manuscripts. And we don't have the original manuscripts. That's why I noticed from our statement of faith, this is what a section uh, cut out from our statement of faith on the word of God. It says this, we believe that the Bible is the word of God. We believe that the Bible is fully and completely inspired and without error in the original manuscripts and in its complete form. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in scripture. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in its original writings. Now notice, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. To say this, is that there are really hard passages. There's a reason why there are many who will poke at the Bible and say, well, this doesn't line up with this and this doesn't line up with that. And there are ways to harmonize these things and there are arguments to be made. But friends, the most important thing is, is regardless of how we might put this pieces together, whether there were two parties or whether it was 30 and five, whatever, the point is, is that this text is sufficient for all that God requires us to do and believe. So two things must be said. The Bible is inerrant in its original writings and God has preserved for us everything we need for life and godliness, as 2 Peter uh, 1.3 says. So here's why I bring this up. There's these different numbers here, but God's word is sufficient. And the point is clear as could be. Joshua perfectly obeyed the Lord by sending the ambush. That's the point. It's quite clear. See, I have commanded you, Joshua says. Unlike Achan in the last chapter, Israel, led by Joshua, is back to obeying everything that the Lord commands. And that is what we're seeing here. So that brings us to the second point. We've seen the command. Now let's see the battle. We'll read a long section. It's verses 10 through 29. So Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. 
So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them, and they fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. And they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. For Joshua had stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set it on fire. And when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against their pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai and the others came out of the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. And when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they had pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel turned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand, which he had stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded that they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So we just read the battle unfolds. It's told in a brilliant way. Did you catch that? You have to love the, the, the storytelling ability of the Bible's wonderful. It unfolds. It tells you things. It's, oh yeah, they went and they set an ambush. And then, oh, well, they came in. And then they turned around and they caught them in the midst of this two-part attack. And the story is really well told. The Bible's wonderful literature. It's grabbing you with its storytelling. And we learn a few extra things in the battle than we did in the original commands. So first, we saw that Joshua... It was interesting. He raised his javelin in verse 18. Did you get that? But then we learn in verse 26, and not only did he just raise it, it wasn't just a mere signal. He raised it and kept it up the whole time as they fought the battle. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this should ring a couple bells. First, it reminds us of Exodus 17 and the battle against the Amalekites. When Moses was up on the hill, and that time Joshua was down in the battle fighting. And Moses, when his hands are up, Israel wins. But every time his hands get tired and they fall, they start to lose. So Aaron and Hur come and they sit him on a stone and they hold his hands up. So that reminds us of that. Joshua now has switched places as it were. He's no longer in the battle. He's now the leader. But also it should remind us of the Red Sea crossing. And the language in the Hebrew is very similar. Where Moses raised his staff and held it up as the wind blew and spread the Red Sea. So they could cross on dry ground. One commentator notes this way. The staff is the symbol of Moses' guidance through the desert. 
while Joshua's was a weapon for battle. But once again, you see the main point. There's this literal obedience of the command of the Lord. We didn't know that he was supposed to raise his staff that way until we get into the battle scene. He says, raise his staff. So he raised his staff and he kept it there the whole time. He's obeying. The Lord said, stretch out your hand. And so Joshua literally kept it there. And he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Now, did you catch that? It's interesting. In the last chapter, all Israel was held accountable for Achan's sin. But in this chapter, all of Israel's victory is accounted to Joshua as the faithful leader. There's this incredible picture here. You've get the corporate and individual. Both of those are realities. And Samuel did a great job of touching on that last week. So we, we won't suss that out as much this week. But we see this picture here from the positive side that Joshua, as an example of obedience, that he leads the people in obedience. And then their victory is accredited to him. But it also is a wonderful challenge for us is, are there commands in God's word that we take as less than literal? What commands of scripture do we, do we see as, well, you know, I can do most of that or some of that. I'm reminded of Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Friends, what are those areas of our lives where we are inconsistent in obeying the Lord? Where we might make little of his commands or seek for at least common denominator obedience. You see, Joshua's obedience here in this section extends even to what many might think is a rather obscure law in Deuteronomy about leaving a king's body hanging overnight. See, the hanging of the body was actually something that had a cultural element in their day. When there was co- uh, conquest type of language in those histories of those people, it was a common practice. After the king was killed to hang him up, it represented that he was on a curse. That's what Deuteronomy picks up on. But see, for the Israelites and for Joshua in particular, the law of the Lord was meant to be the thing that guided their every step. And so when it speaks of someone being hung on a tree, it's being cursed by God. The same hanging on a tree thing will come up in Joshua 10 as well. And, and some, some think that maybe this is what it talks about. It says, due to, due to Ai and its king, what you did to Jericho and its king. That every king they came and they did the same thing to, to demonstrate a picture that they were under the curse of God. But this hanging of a corpse of the king was this symbolic act showing God's judgment. And yet, Joshua still obeyed this, again, rather obscure little law of taking the king down and burying him before the end of the day, because that's what Deuteronomy said. Now, perhaps if you're tuning in and maybe you're not a Christian, this can seem overly barbaric and grotesque, and I can certainly relate to why that might be. Uh, But this is why the message of the Bible only makes sense if you understand the holiness of God, which Samuel preached on last week. See, God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And in this way, the conquest of the land is a foreshadowing of God's judgment. It is his judgment on them then, but it's a picture of God's ultimate judgment later. And yet, I would also say this, is that here is where we find the hope of the Christian gospel. See, you may have spent your whole life in ignoring or even despising God, but for all those who repent of their sins, of their diminishing God, forgiveness is there. But forgiveness is always costly. And that's what we're reminded of with this curse language that we get of hanging on a tree. Because Paul will pick this up in Galatians 3, saying Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We all deserve to be cursed, to be hung on trees, as it were, to be under God's curse. But Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse 
For it is written, quoting from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, friends, that is the Christian gospel. And so if you are not a Christian and you wonder what this language of cursing and what all this has to do, I'd love to speak with you more. But we're getting a picture here in Joshua of the fact that there are only two sides. There are those who are blessed and there are those who are cursed. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what will be played out in this final section of the renewal. So if you look with me at the renewal in verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourners as well of native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So we've seen this, the battle won, the spoil taken, But then you get this rather abrupt change. And it it makes it sound almost like it's immediate. At that time, Joshua built an altar. Well, the language uh, kind of needs to remind us is that, again, this is not a literal history. It's not meant to be a wooden history. Uh, This is meant to be a theological history. And so the at that time is not super technical. The reason we know this is that Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim were some 20 miles away. So that would have taken quite a bit of time for them to get up there. Because remember, they didn't have cars and buses, so this was a big foot travel through hilly country. And so we have to remember what's going on here is that at that time is once again pressing the immediacy of their obedience. Because that's what it goes on to say over and over again. Did you catch it? Three times in those six verses, it says the same thing. Verse 31, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. 33, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly. So what's driving at the at that time is the immediacy of their behavior, of their doing all according to the word of the Lord. So that's the first thing we see, is actually after this, they went up. And some have noted that from a geographical perspective, if you're looking at a map, they've kind of taken the plain, as it were, on on the side of the Jordan, on the west side of the Jordan, and then they're heading up now to the hill country for the next section. And in a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at a large chunk of Joshua where they're just kind of walking through and, and parsing out the different pieces of the land that they took over. But there are some other wonderful biblical themes here. There's a reason why they have these names. And sometimes it might be great to have a good Bible atlas or Bible map with you when you're reading the Bible. And when you get some of these words, Mount Ebal or Mount Gerizim, open up that map. And what you'll see is that, or a good study Bible would show this to you, is that that was the place called Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Well, Shechem, again, should ring a bell for you, is because Shechem was in Genesis 12, where God promised to give Abraham, Abram then, the land of Canaan. He says, look out as far as you can see. This will be your land, and your people will be as the sand of the seashore, as the stars of the sky. And then years later, his grandson, Jacob, who would be renamed Israel, 
coming back from Laban on his way back and ready to face his brother would stay once again in Shechem where the covenant would be renewed with him. So this is where the covenant was made with Abram, where the covenant was renewed with Jacob. And now, all these years later, after 400 years in servitude, and after 40 years of wandering the wilderness, the people are back at Shechem. And so it is only appropriate that there be a covenant renewal. That once again, now the 12 sons, 12 tribes of Jacob or Israel, as he was renamed, will receive once again this covenant renewal. And so, as we said, Joshua and this chapter in particular are all about God fulfilling his promise. His promise to Abraham that he would give them the land is being fulfilled. He had just given them Ai into their hand, and now they head up to renew their part of the promise as well, to hear the promises of God and to renew their oath, their covenant with the Lord. And that's why this uh, section deals with this blessings and curses of the covenant. Now, when it says they read every single word of Moses, uh, there's different ways to take that. Some would say it was the entire book of Deuteronomy, because that was like the second renewal of the covenant. And that might seem the better reading. I mean, could have been even more than that. Um, but it is fortuitous that Joshua was a stone cutter and he recut them on stones there. Um, so God's providence, once again, choosing a leader who could actually use the tools to cut the, the, the law back into the stone was great. But as we see here, this covenant renewal is also very appropriate for another reason. Because we said in chapter 7, they had broken covenant. So they'd received the curse of the covenant with the death of those 36 men and that family. And so now they needed to read once again of the blessings which they had just received. They had received the city and they'd taken the produce for themselves. So this covenant renewal is wonderful. As I said, it's a bracketing of chapters 5 through 8. You can see how it fits that whole section there in, in Joshua. But this reminds us of the centrality of God's word for his people both personally and corporately, is that God's word must occupy a central place in the Christian life. The Bible is not merely a book. The Bible is the special revelation of God, that God is making himself known. He is heard when you read the Bible. You hear God's voice, the reformer said, through the preaching of the word, when you sit under the word rightly preached. And so we see the people, once again here, gathering around the word. And so, friends, I would just encourage you, during these days of limitations on our Sunday gathering, uh, the elders, again, want to ask and press you with the importance of gathering together in community groups or in households together and listening as best we can via the blessing of technology to sit together under the word. And if you're struggling to find a group to connect with, please reach out uh, to Leanne or myself, and, and we, will, we will work on that. We're continuing to work on, on uh, getting people connected so that way you can sit together around the word on Sunday mornings. Now, there's so much more that could be said here, uh, but there's a couple last little points that I want to draw out, and one in particular. And I don't know if you caught it, uh, but it's an interesting thing when you think about it, is that in verse 33 and verse 35, did you catch that there was a mention of sojourners? Now, we know for a fact that this would have included Rahab and her family, but it also is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, and it seems to be more expansive than that. Now, the New Testament tells us that Abraham was a sojourner. He lived in tents. He traveled. He was just passing through. Well, the first time that this Hebrew word here for translated sojourn is used is in Exodus 23, 12, where Israel had been brought out of Egypt, and it specifically says that the Sabbath applies to aliens or to sojourners. And it seems that there were already some sojourning with Israel all the way back in Exodus 12. So with the Exodus, it seems that some Egyptians joined themselves with them. And that's why Exodus 12, 38 says that it was a mixed multitude. It wasn't just the Israelites. It was others who had joined them, who were sojourning with them. Well, if you were to do a word study on this word for sojourn, this Hebrew word for sojourner, 
it will pop up all over the place. Here are just two of the most stunning passages. Uh, I could have listed so many others. But the same word is used in Isaiah 14.1. It says this, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel. And he will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. That's just what happened to Rahab. And Isaiah prophesies that it will happen again in the future from his day. Similarly, in Ezekiel's vision. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, uh, the last nine chapters is this vision of a city, temple, temple, city. It's, it's all mixed up, but it's the city and the temple and the presence of the Lord dwells there. So it's this beautiful picture of this end time reality. And Ezekiel, during that vision, says this, that of the sojourners, they shall be to you as native born children of Israel. With you, they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So here in Joshua, we get just one more hint of this incredible reality. That though God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes, that foreigners, aliens, sojourners will one day be brought in. Will one day be native born as native born children. And for the whole Old Testament times, this was a theme that just didn't quite understand. It, it, there was, you get it, but you don't get it. And this is one of the main issues in the New Testament is what do we do with the fact that the gospel is now going to Gentiles? How are we to deal with this? Because are we supposed to make them become Jewish? Are they supposed to join us with all of our customs and, and feasts? Well, Paul would address this in Ephesians chapter two. Here's an excerpt from two thirteen through 19. He wrote this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that is you Gentiles, you aliens, you sojourners, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What an incredible promise that we see hinted at here all the way back in Joshua. So friends, do you have that hope? The sure hope of being brought near to God by the blood of Christ, of no longer being a stranger and an alien, but as a citizen, as more than a citizen, as a member, as an adopted member of the household of God. See, that word adopted is the same idea as native born children. And the New Testament spells out this theme of adoption in a number of wonderful passages. Well, Anglican theologian J.I. Packer Just the other week, he passed and went on to his reward, and he loved adoption. And he has a famous quote about it, which says this, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Friends, I hope that you know the wonder and joy of being adopted into God's family of being at peace with him, a member of his household, one of the sons and daughters of the king, joined with him, 
All because Jesus Christ was hung on the tree, taking the curse for us so that we can receive his blessings, the blessings of native-born sons. Would you pray with me?